1: In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn
2: more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.
1: Hi, friends. Have you ever flown into Blimp? I haven't. It's one of my goals. And on August 28th, 2014, I had neither. But that's what we talk about and more in the episode, How Blimps Work, coming up right now.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's with us, so that makes this Stuff You Should Know. How you doing? I'm good, man. This is... I'm excited about this one. Oh, are you? Sure. Blimps? Yeah. Because they have like eight names. A blimp? Dirigible? Zeppelin? Yeah. yeah. Uh, airship?
2: Yeah
1: uh well technically lta i'm counting that
0: lighter than airship yeah which i think is ultimately lighter than airship lta is the umbrella term for all of those things which are slightly different yeah i think an lta
1: and an airship is all of them the dirigible is all of them a zeppelin is rigid and a blimp is non-rigid nice and mostly we just have blimps these days not, not a lot of rigid airships.
0: Aren't there, but would they, would they constitute, yeah, no, but they, they they can be semi-rigid or non-rigid, right?
1: Yeah, and I think the future, we'll talk about that obviously at the end, but I think
0: those are, some of those are more uh, the semi-rigid style. Right. they're huge. Yeah, but they're made of some really lightweight, but very strong composite materials. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> so, uh, Chuck, let's talk about the history of blimps, because I think when anybody thinks of, blimps they think hindenburg they think they think the hindenburg and then maybe concurrently or right after the goodyear blimp yeah those are the two that really laid it on the line for blimpdom (laughs) (laughs) uh
1: yeah you know you want to talk about the early history i guess and then get to the tragedy
0: yeah because there wasn't that much time in between the two to tell you the truth
1: Yeah, I mean, it all started, of course, with uh, hot air balloons because uh, they're not so different. Uh, In 1783, a couple of Frenchies, brothers, uh, Jacques Etienne and uh, Joseph uh, Michel. They said they were brothers, but they have different last names. I think
0: Jacques Etienne is his first and middle name. Oh, okay. That makes sense. God, they all had three names. Uh, They're like serial killers.
1: (laughs) Montgolfier. (laughs) They invented the hot air balloon, uh, an unmanned hot air balloon. In 1783, and then uh, later that same year, a French physicist, uh, last name de Rosier, uh, had the first manned balloon flight, mm-hmm. and they were just floating around because that's what blo- or uh,
0: balloons do. You can go up, and then if you're really good, you can come back down. But left and right, that's up to Mother Nature. That's right, which is a little scary. Although I think these days,
1: can they steer them at all? We have a great article on this on hot, hot air, air balloon. No,
0: yeah. you're you're subject to the winds to the the um what's the god of wind that you know he like know. comes out of the cloud and blows wind yeah that guy yeah you're you're subject to his whim
1: so if uh if you're headed toward something it's go over it or hit it
0: yes okay and you remember there was that terrible blo- um hot air balloon accident in i think virginia last year or earlier this year i didn't hear about that yeah like they hit a power line i think and then the basket caught fire and like Jeez. they had to jump it was really bad wow um, but, yeah, you can go up and over, and I imagine— Or I guess under, if it's like a power line. Yeah, or a tunnel, if you're really good. <laughs> wow. Uh, or you're in a cartoon like the Laugh Olympics. Yeah. That's something they do in there. Totally. But the, um, the, I think if you're really good, you could probably know where to steer into the wind to maybe yeah. use, use the wind. But, no, with the blimp, the big distinction is, aside from its distinctive shape, is that you can maneuver like a pro.
1: That's right, and that's what uh, Henry uh, Jaffart did in 1852 when he finally, someone said, we should steer these things, and he built the first powered airship, and uh, it was cigar-filled, like the classic shape that we know and love now. Mm -hmm. Had a propeller, like they have now, and a little engine, although it was a steam engine, which they don't use now. A three-horsepower steam engine. (laughs) Yeah, they're not huge engines still. Doesn't
0: take a lot, apparently. No, it really doesn't.
1: Um... And th- those were uh, rigid airships. Uh, it's, a, it's a metal framework. Mm-hmm. And in 1900, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, if that name sounds familiar. Led Zeppelin. Of Germany. Uh, and that's where they got the name, of course. Sure. But the... I
0: never understood the LED, the LED.
1: Well, it was, uh, I think someone said, as a joke, uh, you guys are going to go over like a LED Zeppelin. Or
0: they did when they played on the BBC. Was that it? But why take the A out? Oh, because the same reason you take the A out of Def Leppard. I've never understood that either. In the same way, you put an umlaut over Motley Crue, it just yeah. makes you cool. You know, different differentiates. You got to misspell something in your band name. I think I was just looking too deeply into it. Is the problem? Yeah, L E A D Zeppelin would be weird. Yeah, but I think like our paradigm would have adjusted. We'll we would you. think L E D Zeppelin would be weird if we were used to Led Zeppelin yeah. with an A, or if the Beatles was spelled B E E T L E S, yeah,
1: instead of their punny name.
0: Very punny. All
1: right. Boy, we get sidetracked so easy with music stuff.
0: Not really. Zeppelin was... I think people saw that coming before they pressed play. That's true.
1: Uh, So that was the rigid airship, the first one, and those have a metal framework, and uh, it had tail fins and rudders, had combustion engines, and could cruise at about 1,300 feet with up to five people.
0: Yes. Not bad. You could bring the whole family as long as you... Encounter as long as you totaled no more than five. Yeah as long as you paid off the captain Well, then you just have to be a family of four. That's right. Because the captain's got to sit somewhere, right? Yeah, they got their little captain's chair. So (laughs) Everything was going quite swimmingly actually um, Around the turn of the 20th century There there was it was just widely assumed that we would have a future where blimps zeppelins were just a regular feature of the sky well, they were. Uh, up until the Hindenburg went down,
1: there were more than 2,000 flights, carried um, tens of thousands of passengers
0: over a million miles. Like, that was air travel. We should say ultra-wealthy passengers at the time. Sure. Um, the Hindenburg in particular was was high class. It was the pride of Nazi Germany. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was on its maiden voyage, wasn't it? It was almost called the Hitler, by the way. Was it really? Yeah, but Hitler's like, uh, I don't want my name on that thing.
1: Really? Yeah, not that he, like foretold the future. He just didn't, I don't know, he just didn't want him named after an airship.
0: He didn't believe um, Freud's idea that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah. Or a cigar shaped airship is just a cigar shaped airship. (laughs) And it crashed and burned too. So he was probably
1: pretty stoked that he didn't have his name on it.
0: Yeah. He very famously went, whew. Yeah. When he heard the news. Exactly. So uh, we should probably stop making light of this nearly 80-year-old tragedy, because people did die, you know? Yeah.
1: I mean, should we tell the story?
0: Let's. Uh,
1: All right. Well, it took off on May 3rd, uh, 1937, had 36 passengers and 61 uh, officers and crew members and trainees. Uh, Left Frankfurt at about 7.15, and then crossed out out over the Atlantic at about 2 a.m. the next day. It's not super fast travel. It was compared to the ship travel at the time. It was sure. about
0: uh, it took about half the time to cross the Atlantic as it did in a boat.
1: Yeah, but compared to what we're used to. Oh yeah, you were just it was leisurely, right? Um, and apparently, after reading more about the Hindenburg, it's not as um, and I guess ship travel is sort of the same way. Like we're going to get there when we get there. Like we're heading, we're trying to get there then, but you never know what's going to happen. Right. That's
0: why they called them the leisure class. <laughs> That's right uh
1: it follow, uh, followed a northern track across the ocean um eventually crossed uh into north america over the coast of newfoundland and arrived in lakehurst new jersey uh, about 12 hours late and um
0: germans they're always late yeah they're famous for it
1: <laughs> and basically arrived there at the naval air station and because of poor weather the captain and the um commanding officer on the ground said you know what The weather's not so great. Let's wait a little bit um, because they can fly around forever in those things. Right. And um, he said, all right, well, the Jersey Shore is nice. Let's just go fly above that and tell everyone to look around. (laughs) Look
0: at all those old-timey bathing suits on (laughs) everybody.
1: They're up to their ankles in water. Um, By 6 p.m., conditions had improved. And at 6.12, he sent a message saying, it's suitable for landing, recommended landing now. At about 7.08, he finally... uh, pulled the blimp in. It was a bit of a dodgy approach, but he eventually, you know, got it down toward the ground pretty, you know, uh, skillfully.
0: Which, as we'll see, is not as easy as you'd think. Even though it sounds easy, it's it's not in practice. No. Uh,
1: They dropped the landing lines, and then things went south, (laughs) like, really fast. Yeah. But it
0: was filled with hydrogen, which is the uh, lightest element, right? Yeah. And... uh, it's also probably the most flammable, or one of them.
1: Yes, inflammable was a big uh, error at the time. Um, a lot of blimps had caught on fire. This was not the first accident, and uh, there was, you know, people testified afterward because not everyone died. We'll get to the numbers here at the end of the story, but um, there was testimony that um, it appeared as if gas was pushing against the cover. Maybe it escaped from a gas cell um, at 7:25. The first visible flames appeared. And it varies, but most witnesses say that the first flames were either at the top of the hull uh, forward of the vertical fin or between the rear port uh, engine and the port fin. Mm -hmm. And they described it as a mushroom-shaped flower, and it pretty much engulfed the tail, like, right away. And it was able to remain steady for a little while, like people could start jumping out at this point.
0: Well, those are the people who died, correct? No. That's what I always heard, or that's what I have heard, is that... The people who stayed in the, the gondola lived, and the people who jumped were the ones that died because the flames, because hydrogen is light, they were burning upward. Well, it says here, basically,
1: it was uh, all depended on where you were. Uh, if you were close to a means of exit, you generally survived. Um, if you were deep inside the si- uh, ship, mm-hmm. like in the power room along the keel, or in the smoking room, they had a smoking room in the Hindenburg.
0: <laughs> I'm surprised it wasn't all smoking. With a big blimp full of hydrogen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it. It was that.
1: not a good idea. They had a, apparently a double um, airlocked door, one electric lighter, and um, you were allowed to smoke as long as you put it out before you left. <laughs> and um, so, like I said, if you were in the smoking room on B deck, you were in big trouble. Um, if you were one of the nine men closest to the front of the ship, you definitely didn't survive. Really? Yeah. So uh, out of the 97 people on board, 62 survived. I think when you see the footage, I mean, you can watch it on YouTube. Yeah. It looks like how in the world could anyone survive it? Because it goes, I mean, it's fully burned in less than a minute and on the ground.
0: Yeah, it went up fast.
1: Uh, But 62 did survive, Uh, 13 of the 36 passengers and 22 of the 61 crew. And
0: there's still two guys alive today.
1: Last I checked, as of two years ago. But they don't like to talk about it.
0: I can imagine. Yeah, there's one. dramatic uh, pretty traumatic experience.
1: They're both named Werner, Werner Franz and Werner Doner. The two Verners. And uh, one was a little cabin boy and one was a passenger with his family. And uh, they were contacted for like the, you know, the ceremony. Uh, I guess you don't call it an anniversary, I guess.
0: Uh, memorial? Just, yeah, memorial Yeah, it's an ceremony. anniversary.
1: Yeah. It just sounds like a party,
0: you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but they said, no, nah, we're not coming. We don't like to talk
0: about it. Yeah. So, it's been a long-standing mystery exactly what happened. I found a an article in the UK Independent from 2013 about a study from that year that found—they said, they they figured it out. They built, like, scale models of the Hindenburg, which was, like, two and a half football fields long, by the way. Yeah. They were building scale models that were, like, um, like 60 feet long, so yeah. good-sized ones. And they tried to blow them up because there was a rumor that it was sabotage, right. you know that everybody hated the Nazis even then. Um, and uh, they tried all, all manner of stuff. And what they finally figured out was that probably what happened was from being in that stormy weather, that exterior, the envelope of the blimp became um, uh, electrified. Oh, yeah? And when the ground crew ran up and grabbed the cables, they completed the current from the blimp to the ground, which caused a spark, which actually um, ignited a hydrogen leak. Ah. That fire caused the explosion. That must have been the gas pushing out. Yeah.
1: Yeah, one thing they say it definitely isn't, which they long thought it was, was the actual fabric was, like, painted in this flammable stuff. Right. And that's not true. It was the standard fabric. Oh, okay. It was just a big balloon fill of...
0: Hydrogen yeah, in that some caught sort of spark. Yeah. Yeah. So when that happened, um, the, the future of blimps were just pretty much like that was it for blimps. That wasn't the immediate end, but as far as like commercial blimp travel, yeah. that's tough for an industry to get over. So it kind of fell to the wayside, although they did continue on um, in a couple of forms. Uh, up until the 60s, the U.S. government, especially the Navy, maintained blimps. One of the, um, the I think, the, I guess the Air Force, I don't know if it was the Navy, but uh, one of the branches of the U.S. military used blimps as um, giant aircraft carriers of the air. Not not the sea, the air, which is pretty awesome. And apparently they had them so you could uh, connect like a light plane to what's called like a trapeze mechanism coming out of the bottom of the blimp. So yeah. you just like hook your plane on, climb up and say, hey, guys, where are we going? Or you can take off from there, too. What? Yes. How do you take off? You just drop? I think you just release the hook from the trapeze and start to free fall, and then you just go off into the distance and go, thanks for the ride, lady. That
1: sounds really weird.
0: Um, And they had even bigger plans that were never realized because the Navy scrapped the program in, I think, 1962 um, to have, like, a landing strip on top of the blimp so you could have just, like, planes take off and land and then be stored like in the blimp, which yeah. would have been pretty awesome.
1: Well, cargo airships are the wave of the future, perhaps. So we'll see.
0: Yeah. So, but that was the the military was involved in blimps for most of the first half of the twentieth century, and then um, our friends at Goodyear came up with a blimp that has really served them well. Like they were making blimps for the military, and then um, they started using them for commercial purposes and. Everybody knows about Goodyear, thanks to those blimps.
1: Yeah, and they're going to figure in here, of course, because you can't talk about blimps a lot without a ton of buzz marketing for Goodyear. Yeah, um, but you know that's where they make their name. In fact, my in-laws almost wrote on the one based out of Akron because that's where they're from, and they I uh, think he was going to put in a, a bid on a um, like an auction bid to win a trip. Neat, and I think it never happened. The trip never happened?
0: I think he he either lost the bid. I'll have to ask him, but I don't think they ever wrote on the blimp. Okay. I was going to say, if the trip never happened, that doesn't sound like the Goodyear I know. No, no. They're very, uh, they're like the Germans. So they've got, there's three um, Goodyear blimps, actually. There's one in, I believe, Texas. There's one in California. There's one in Ohio. Or is it Florida, California, and Ohio is what it is. I'm sorry. Um, The Spirit of Goodyear, the Spirit of America... The spirit of innovation and Chuck, about the time this episode comes out, Robin Roberts, the TV personality, is going to be christening the newest member of the fleet, the Wingfoot One. Nice. So they're going to have four. Yeah. Because there's a lot of sporting events. There sure are. And you can't
1: watch a big sporting event without hearing the words uh, aerial coverage provided by Goodyear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And those shots, man, they're pretty great. They really are. They haven't been around forever. It was, I think, an Orange Bowl in Miami where the first one was broadcast in, what, like the 60s maybe? I don't know. Something like that. And it changed America.
1: Yeah. Well, it um, certainly gives them a lot of press and saves, well, I don't know about saves them money. I haven't seen their balance sheet. But it's they don't have to spend money on that 30-second spot. They still do <laughs> to tie into the blimp. Right. But uh, it's great advertising for them.
0: Yeah, um, they also were good sports in a movie called Black Sunday. Oh, yeah. Did you ever see that movie? No, oh, of course I never saw it. Um, but that apparently, the seventies <laughs> they provided um, they provided some of the footage for the movie. Yeah, and um, let their blimps be used, uh, and let their name be used. Even like it wasn't like the the good wire blimp. You know, they didn't try to have to change it just yeah. enough they used Goodyear which made the whole thing even more terrifying and realistic yeah they wanted to kill the, everyone at the Super Bowl that was the plot right uh, with a blimp right that shot darts <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is weird but yeah. it was written by the guy who wrote Silence of the Lambs oh yeah he's a good writer have you ever read any of his books Uh oh he,
1: he was the book writer yeah oh no I didn't know that yeah no he, I haven't read any of Silence
0: of the Lambs he book. does very good research interesting guy Nice. Um, anyway, so Goodyear, uh, Goodyear in the military. After the Hindenburg, that was the two cases of blimps. But like you said, there is potentially a future for blimps, which we'll talk about. But first, let's talk about how blimps work in general after these messages. Stuff All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. And right now, go to squarespace.com slash stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. Stuff you,
1: you want to know how blimps work, buddy? I do. They're pretty simple. They are. This was the delight to learn because it was like, oh, I thought there would be just that little to it, and that's really kind of the case. You know? Right?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's not like, oh, and here's where it gets really hard. Right. They're here's... like uh, the pontoon boats of the sky.
1: Yeah. You like know? the most complicated thing on the blimp is probably the gyroscopic camera on the front of it <laughs> to film the football stadium.
0: Yep. I think you're right.
1: Uh, so let's talk about the anatomy of a blimp. You have you mentioned the envelope earlier. That is the thing that you're looking at. That the skin. is the big cigar-shaped balloon. It's filled nowadays with helium. Uh, It is that shape because of uh, aerodynamics, of course. And they are super lightweight and super strong, like you were saying. Neoprene,
0: two-ply neoprene polyester, generally. Is that what the envelope's made of? Yeah. There's a company um, called the ILC Dover Corporation. They make a lot of skins, um, and they use the same material that they make um, spacesuits out of for NASA. Blimps too. It's good enough for Neil Armstrong, buddy. It's yeah. good enough for my blimp. This is like all about Ohio, this one. <laughs> oh, is he Ohio? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd have done that. So is Goodyear? No, no, I knew that.
1: Um, so are your in laws. That's right. Uh, the envelopes they hold, um, and it depends on the blimps for all of these statistics, of course, mm. but between 67,000 and 250,000 cubic feet of helium. And um, it's not super, the pressure is really low inside, 0.07 pounds per square inch. So that's why if you shot a blimp, it wouldn't like fall. No. It'd just leak very slowly and you just land it and patch it up, I guess. Yeah, very slowly. Yeah, in 1994, the British Ministry of Defense fired hundreds of bullets into an airship. Just for fun? Well, no, to see if it would could be shot down in battle, basically. Oh, uh, gotcha. And uh, it took many hours to deflate and land. So Cool. And they don't even deflate them. They just leave them that way.
0: So the, their natural structure, well, not natural, but their original structure um, prevents them from being shot down. That's one big benefit. Because I was wondering about that. I was like, you're just providing a target for every teenager with a gun in any country that you hover a blimp over. Sure. Um, now I understand. But secondly, as we'll see, it also has to do with the dynamics of, of flight, of um, hovering in the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so you got the envelope, and the envelope also has something called nose cone battens, yeah. which is basically like a support structure for the nose, the front of it. Yeah, just the very, very tip. And it keeps the, um, the, the, the blimp's front from being mashed in as it moves forward. Which is pretty smart.
1: Yeah, I think I misspoke. The nose cone is on just the very tip, and then the battens are like the fingers that distribute the stress over the front of the cone.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so they're like the um, the the structure that comes out of the nose, right? Yeah. And then also on the nose is the mooring um, hook because you got to hook a blimp up to something.
1: Yeah, it's got a little spindle there, and um, it's got a little uh, wheel under the tail rudder, and... That's basically how it sits. You just tie it
0: down. Yeah. Very simple. Um, just like a balloon. That's right. So there's here's where it gets a little craftier, like 19th century crafty, but still yeah. neat nonetheless. Sure. Um, there's something called ballonets, right? Yeah. And these are basically air bladders that are located within the envelope. Yeah. And you inflate or deflate them depending on whether you want the blimp to go up or down. If you want it to go up, you deflate these ballonets. You want it to go down, you inflate them. And the reason that works is because you're inflating or you're inflating these ballonets with air and helium, which blimps fly using now, is lighter than air. So, more air means the blimp's heavier so it goes down. Less air means it's lighter so it goes up. Yeah, it's pretty easy. It's sort
1: of like how a submarine operates. Um, and there's one in the uh, fore and one in the aft. So that's how you control your trim. You can just nose it up or nose it down, filling up or
0: deflating. That's the uh, pitch axis.
1: That's right. Or trim. Okay. Well, the trim is the levelness.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. And the axis where the nose and the back go up and down, that's the trim axis. Or no, the the pitch axis. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. No one can see you nod in agreement. Okay. Um, Chuck, then there's the catenary curtain and the suspension cables, which I didn't get the catenary curtain, really. I understood the suspension cables just fine.
1: Uh, it's on the, uh, on the inside, uh, about 30% off center. Um, and it basically, uh, if you look, it sort of looks like the, where you attach the basket to the hot air balloon. They all, um, you know, there's a number of these lines that run down and all meet at a single point. Um, near the uh, gondola.
0: Uh, right, and that's what you attach the gondola to the blimp using, right?
1: Yeah, so basically if if you, if you the blimp envelope wasn't there, it would sort of look like a hot air balloon. It would have these lines that run up from the gondola, a.k.a.
0: basket, okay. up to the top. So they would be like the um, vertical lines, whereas yeah, it's the battens or the horizontal lines. Yeah. Okay, I understand now. Exactamundo. Um, Then you've got the really technical stuff, the flight control surfaces. So everything we've just described is basically balloons and then the structure that gives the balloon its shape, right? Yeah. And then um, the flight control surfaces are basically a rudder and elevators. And they're the things that you can control to make the balloon tilt upward or side to side. That's pretty much it.
1: Yeah, there's that one rudder uh, on the top and bottom, and that uh, controls your yaw, and you do it with little, if you look at a captain's chair, he's got little, little foot pedals, mm-hmm. just like a clutch pedal you would put in, uh, push in. And um, on the bottom, very bottom back of the rudder, there's something called a boost tab, and that's just a little additional uh, sectioned-off piece of the rudder that's also controllable. It's like a little mini rudder. And um, it assists with the rudder, I think, to make an even tighter turn. Gotcha. So if you imagine just the smaller rudder uh, as part of the main rudder, just to give you that extra boost, I guess, when you need to turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's uh, two elevators, and they, um, if you are sitting in your little captain's chair, imagine a car steering wheel <laughs> placed uh, vertically, like, by your side, mm-hmm. and that's just a wheel that
0: you turn up and turn down. <laughs> it's really very basic. It sounds like... The Wizard of Oz. It totally behind is. Behind the curtain, like all the machine he's messing with. It, and there's steam blown out. It everything. looks very
1: steampunky when you look at it. Huh. Uh, so you steer up or down with that wheel, and uh, that's pretty much it. Oh, no. Don't forget the engines. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, as far as, like, driving this puppy.
0: Yeah, the flight control. Yeah. This is what separates it from hot air balloons. Don't forget. The engines. No, the hot air. The uh, Well, yeah, the engines, but also the flight control services. Sure. But the engines are... Turbo prop engines, right? There's twin ones, which means there's two, one on each side of the gondola at the rear. And they're pretty cool because they propel the thing forward, but very cleverly, there's also something called air scoops that are basically these funnels that face the back of the turboprop, and they catch the vented air out of the props, and they use those to inflate the um, ballonets. Yeah. That's called prop wash. This is all the
1: lingo I've learned.
0: That's good stuff.
1: Uh, And the engines are just six-cylinder engines, like I said, that you don't need a ton of power to power these things. And you can go at about 30 to 70. This says miles per hour, not knots. So how about that? And 70 is cruising. Apparently, like, 30 to 50 is where you want
0: to be. Get this. I did the calculations. So one of the... um one of the great advantages blimps have, which is the reason we're even talking about these things, or anybody's talking about still making blimps, is that they can stay aloft for days, weeks even. Yeah. Um, which gives them a huge advantage over airplanes, which have to stop and refuel and stop and refuel. But uh, going 70 miles per hour, Chuck, a blimp, nonstop at that rate, could travel the circumference of the Earth around the equator in uh, 14 days. Wow. With that and a fuel... Yeah, which I think is not very hard.
1: No, they um, at 30 knots, uh, the, the skyship, which is just one example, um, consumes about eight gallons of fuel per hour. So apparently during an entire week of operations, it consumes less fuel than a 767 uh, commercial jet uses to move away from the gate. Wow. So it's super green, which is kind of cool.
0: You can understand why cargo companies are looking at them too.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, it runs on Avgas, of course, not just regular old gas. You couldn't pull it up to a a gas station like your car Mm -hmm. uh, because I think Avgas is still leaded, or a lot of it is. Oh. And that's the diff.
0: That's not that green. Yeah, true, but they're not burning much of it. Uh, so let's see, what else is there? The valves, you got to be able to let air in and out. Yeah, you yeah. also want to be able to let air in and out of the envelope itself in case things become too pressurized. You don't want it to pop. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so you've got your air
1: valves for the um, for the bladders inside, and they are underneath, uh, two, two up front, two in the back. And then you have your helium valve, and you can either vent it, and you don't have to do this much because you should have it pretty, like the pressure set. But if something does happen, you can either manually do it, or it's set to automatically release. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Goodyear blimp, it's sort of in the Y of uh, year. Wow! Little just looks like a little gas cap.
0: You really know your blimps,
1: man. Well, I mean, I went to the Goodyear site. It's awesome. (laughs) You can like, there's all sorts of animated gifs and uh, or is it gifs? I never could remember. I say gif. Yeah,
0: yeah, graphic interface. Yeah, but there is a correct way. I just don't know what it is. Well, the guy who created GIF says GIF. he pronounces it GIF. Oh, well, Which then it's kind GIF. of throws a wrench in the works, <laughs> but I disagree with him. Morgulons. <laughs> GIF. Uh, the Goodyear
1: Blimp Gondola, which is where we are now, is 22.75 feet long. And it is aluminum on welded steel frame, and that's where everyone rides. Um, depending on your Blimp, it's going to hold up to... Well, it depends on how big the blimp is, but usually you don't see a blimp with more than 12 passengers or so.
0: Yeah, and it's not even necessarily passengers. The gondola can also be the place where it holds all of the surveillance equipment, too. Sure. Depending on what you use it for, or it can also be the massive cargo hold.
1: Yeah, and you've got your communications up there, your flight surface controls, any nav equipment, um, propeller controls. That's where all the, there's, there's not much else to it besides what what you got there in the gondola.
0: Yeah. What's funny is, is um, I, I always thought blimps were basically like you know you you get the blimp in the air and it takes off and then that's it. But it, it's it's uh, at least with Goodyear, it's kind of like um, got helicopter parents almost because when the blimp when you see the blimp if yeah. you look around you'll also find a ground crew with a bus, a eighteen wheeler, and a bunch of vans that follow it everywhere because i guess those things break down.
1: Yeah, and apparently the pilots too, they're FAA certified and Goodyear pilots also have another training program, but the pilots are even it's all sort of everyone is cross-trained it sounds like. Yep. to work on the ground or make repairs and um yeah, it's like a little self-contained unit. All just traveling around together like a like uh tornado family. chasers. Right. <laughs> oh, and uh, you and you talked about um the in, you know you, if they just took off and floated around if the engines did stop that's exactly what you're doing you're basically a hot air balloon at that
0: point you so you lose control of the flight service controls
1: yeah well i mean if it's it, they call it a free balloon uh uh-huh. so it's buoyant um and it's kept aloft obviously but if they lose all the power then all you can do is ascend and descend because i think i guess the rudders and the elevators are also uh, powered Mechanisms. I got gotcha. you. It's not just attached to a cable, attached to a pedal.
0: Attached to a wheel
1: that the guy yeah. moves next to. <laughs> it sounds like it is, though. And as far as weather goes, they compare it to roughly uh, operating is about as similar as a helicopter. Like we can fly in bad weather, um, but we try to avoid super bad weather.
0: Yeah, I, I don't blame them. Sure. Because, I mean, that's no fun.
1: <laughs> no. You want to be above the Rose Bowl in like 70-degree weather. Sure.
0: Yeah. So uh, coming up, we're going to talk about how blimps fly and then uh, also the future of blimps and if there is such a thing after this. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. So, Chuck, the the way blimps fly is pretty simple and beautiful and elegant, if you ask me. Yeah? Yeah. So, you have helium, right? Yeah. Which is, uh, they used to use hydrogen. Helium's slightly heavier than um, hydrogen, but not that much more. You don't notice a difference, I would guess. Yeah, I mean, you get why they use hydrogen. They weren't dummies. Right. It was lighter than air. Sure. The lightest of all the gases. Yeah. Of all the elements, from what I understand. Um, and when hydrogen blew up, they said, okay, not hydrogen. What else do we have? And they said, well, helium works. And so they started using helium. And helium has a lift of uh, lift capacity of 0.70 pounds per square foot, right? Yeah. Which is 1.1 kilograms per square meter, um, which means uh, it can lift a pretty decent amount of Weight, yeah, for just a little bit amount, sure. And since they're filling these balloons with hundreds of thousands of cubic feet or cubic meters of these um, of helium, they can lift tons and tons of weight. And they do it by just simple physics. Since helium is lighter than air, as long as the helium uh, has enough lifting power to lift whatever the envelope and the gondola and all of the mechanisms weigh, then it will rise more than the air. It will rise into the air. Yeah. It's called positive buoyancy. Yep. And uh, what
1: you want as a blimp pilot is neutral buoyancy. So that's why you're going to control, like we talked about, your air bladders to, uh, to get that thing where it's, once you've got your cruising altitude,
0: you just want to be at the same level. you, yeah, you want You to go want it up to. and down. And you want to fill it up by blowing exhaust into your air scoops, which fill up your ballonets. And the higher you get into the atmosphere the less pressure there is, which means the higher up you could float conceivably. So you want to make sure you you get that air in so you don't just float away. And you achieve, is it negative buoyancy or neutral buoyancy, you said? Yeah, that's what you want. And then when you want to land, you do just the opposite. Um, You fill it up with even more air, and then you make the blimp heavier than the helium inside can lift, and it just slowly comes down to the ground. And, I mean, that's it. That's how blimps rise and fall. Yeah, it is pretty simple. And uh, when they're on the ground,
1: they just tie it to that little spindle. You've got your little wheel under the rear. you got a little tractor to tow it around, <laughs> maybe a hanger. And uh, that's the life of a blimp. And it, like I said, they don't inflate and deflate these. Uh, I'm sure it's a time and an expense. Uh, and uh, I think they're running out of helium, too. Didn't we learn that? Yeah. Do you know much about that? Well, we, we covered it in uh, the...
0: Uh, Probably the Mars Turbine episode. Mars Turbine. Yeah, that was it. Well, I read a a really interesting article in, I think, the New Republic. I can't remember. I found it online last night. And um, it's about the helium shortage and why we have a helium shortage. And apparently, the U.S. has had a reserve, a strategic helium reserve since 1925 in a cave in Texas. And uh, apparently, during the Clinton era the government said, let's make some money off of this, or let's make our money back off of it. So they passed a law that said, start selling this stuff off, Bureau of Land Management. Yeah. But, only make enough money off of it to recoup whatever we've put into it over the years, which is like $1 billion. Yeah. So they started selling it, and by setting the price artificially, they created an artificial market because this is like 80-90% of the world's helium reserves in this cave in Texas. So whatever the BLM was selling it for, that's how much the market value was. But it was artificial. So you had artificially cheap helium flooding the market, which had a two-pronged effect. One, it led to these scarcities that we're running into now because they just started selling it off in a fire sale to private industry. But the other more positive effect it had was that it, it spurred all of this technological innovation because Nuclear magnetic resonance, Uh the technology behind MRIs, superconductivity, um, molecular analysis, uses helium to super cool magnets to turn them into superconductors, right? So you need helium for that. So all these industries were using this helium from the Bureau of Land Management to, like, advance technology by leaps and bounds, which is one of the big reasons why we are where we are right now, technologically speaking— because of helium. But now we're starting to run out. There's, I think, 9 billion cubic feet of helium left in the reserve in Texas, which is about a third of what they had when they started selling it off in the 90s, Yeah, which would be fine if we just clamped it down and said, okay, this is a reserve again. But instead, for some reason, the government just doubled down and issued another decree to the Bureau of Land Management. like, keep selling this stuff let's just get rid of all of it for no good reason Uh, i don't understand why interesting like it made sense in the 90s maybe and it it had all these great effects but now it's like okay we understand that helium is literally irreplaceable as the article put it like there's once there's no helium there's no helium like we can't go get it anywhere else or manufacture it and we have no technology to recycle it i wonder what the reason is I, I guess money, private industry, has a lot of interest in it. Yeah. And there's good interest, too, like using it for MRIs or pharmaceutical research or that or kind of stuff. birthday parties. Well, that's the thing. So med, the med and pharma sectors use 29% of helium worldwide. Welding uses 17% because they use helium to weld. Yeah. Party balloons equals 8% of worldwide helium use. Wow. I have a feeling that party balloons are going to go the way of the dinosaur very soon if they haven't already.
1: And half of that is the stoner kid who operates the helium tank.
0: Right. <laughs> Just talking funny. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the helium shortage. That's the skinny on it.
1: Wow. So the I wonder if there's any other uh, gas they could use for blimps. I don't know. It seems like a giant waste. Or I wonder if they could inc- like uh, do like a hybrid so it's fueled by hot air like a balloon. Mm. Huh. Probably wouldn't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know either. Uh, well, I guess we are at the future then, in the future. And uh, depending on who you ask, the future of uh, airships is either super exciting and awesome. <laughs> and when you look at these, they are. Yeah. Or it's not going to be funded enough to really, um, there's not a lot of money being pumped into it.
0: Well, the government was for a little while with the uh, Afghanistan war. The Department of Defense was like, give us new blimps. We want these things now. And all these companies ran in and were like, here's your blimps. Here's your blimps. Give us some money. The problem is is the whole program got scrapped because nobody could fulfill the enormous orders the DOD was placing for helium.
1: Right. Well, that makes sense. Uh, And the military is interested because they basically um, could be a a satellite, function as a satellite. Yeah,
0: like a 10,000-foot satellite.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, there are people doing it, though. Lockheed Martin has a P-791 um, that is super cool looking. <laughs> yeah. and It is a tri-hull. If you look at it from the front, it looks sort of like three blimps squashed together. Um, and it has four big, it looks like feet, these disc-shaped cushions that are apparently for landing. Mm-hmm. And these are all so cool. There's um, another one in California uh, from Worldwide Eros Corp. Called the Dragon Dream, yeah, and it's different looking. It sort of looks like a whale shark. Did you see it? Yeah, it's a single hull, I guess, but it's sort of kind of flattened out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it looks like a whale shark.
0: They they actually submitted that design to the DoD, and when the DoD scrapped the program, um, they bought their design back because they want to go commercial, like cargo carrier with it. Yeah, and well, they, they're in trouble though because the Dragon. Died.
1: Well, it had a roof collapse and yeah. a hangar, yeah, and they don't know if they have the money to even fix it and then continue.
0: Well, they have another model called the ML-866 that it sounds like they're putting their energy into. It supposedly can carry 250 tons, which is t- more than twice the cargo payload of a cargo 777. Wow. Twice. And, again, you mentioned how little fuel it takes to power these things. Yeah. So it'll take a little while for you to get your package, but... The company shipping it isn't going to spend too much money delivering it.
1: I still say if it's a military, like uh, to use as a cargo plane, I know you can't shoot a hole in it, but what if you launched a surface-to-air missile at it? You know, it's still full of helium. That's doesn't sound like I don't know. Maybe they're so high up there you can't.
0: The fact that we have satellites and drones, it seems to me like the surveillance uses of blimps are preposterous, especially considering that. We could be using that helium for medical purposes instead. Yeah, you know, I agree. You got anything else on blimps? I got nothing else. Um, I got one other thing. If you were fascinated by the um, the way blimps float, I think it's cool for some reason. I did a brain stuff um, video. Oh, nice. About that, you can calculate how many balloons it would take, like regular party balloons, to lift yourself into the sky. And I made a video about it. So you go to uh, brainstuffshow.com and check it out. Nice. Uh, and if you want to read this article, you can go to uh, howstuffworks.com, type in how blimps work, and it will bring it up. And I said how stuff works, I think. So that means it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, sterilizing addicts. Remember that old one?
2: mm mm-hmm.
1: Did a show on whether or not it's legal to sterilize addicts. Turns out it is. Yeah, and that's the thing. Uh, And this is from someone who had a personal uh, stake in it. Um, It's long, but I'm going to edit it in my head as I go. Okay. Hey, guys, just recently listened to your podcast on sterilization uh, sterilization of addicts. I had a personal story to uh, share. Um, Until uh, my mother uh, is a fully recovered heroin addict, and I'm grateful just to be alive. Until I was six, she was only an alcoholic. However, drug addiction set in fast. My mother, brother, and myself along with whatever scumbag boyfriend she had at the time, were constantly on the run from the police looking for shelter and searching for food. Uh, My father is an upper-middle-class blue-collar worker who always had a sound home environment. When my mother was sent to prison when I was 10, I was sent to live with my father. Always had food, a shower, and clean clothes. Was never in fear for being homeless. Uh, I lived with my father for three years until I finally ran away once I regained contact with my mother. My father, even with his financial support and stability, was never there even though he was only a few feet away. Uh, My mother, even while on drugs, always listened and always cared about my thoughts and feelings. And that was what was important as a child. uh, My mother eventually overcame her addictions cold turkey because she could see it was damaging uh, to me and my brother. She's been clean for 11 years now and is an amazing mother and an amazing grandmother to my nephew. Uh, I like to believe that seeing the harder side of life made me appreciate uh, such things and be more humble and responsible. Uh, and fearful of what could happen if I slipped or did not take care of myself. Uh, I don't want to be the poster child for uh, children of addicts. However, I do believe that we are all in control of our own lives. Uh, and that is anonymized as Cornelius Jacobs the Seventh. Corny Jake Seven. Yeah. He said, yeah, you can read it. And I said, I'll anonymize uh, it.
0: <laughs> did, is there some sort of name anonymizer on the internet? No, he said please do just make
1: it something awesome like cornelius jacob's the 7th that's great that's a like, cool uh, ps i've been secretly wanting jerry to be the tyler durden of your podcast i <laughs>
0: don't lot know of what people. that even means lot, like uh, made up but like we think she's real but she's not oh okay are you real jerry jerry says no nope <laughs> well that answers that cornelius jacob's the 7th and you read the roman numerals correctly chuck this time good going Yeah, nice going V-I-I. yeah uh if you want to get in touch with me and Chuck to tell us any story like Cornelius Jacobs the Seventh, um, please do. You can tweet to us at syskpodcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash stuff you should know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks dot com. And as always, go to our cool home on the web stuff you Stuff you should know is a
2: production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals,